Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the Abstract Podcast. talk about Sean Foyt and the Let Us Worship movement. We're going to talk about Columbus Day. We're going to talk about homosexuality again. And we're going to finish off with a small response to a listener question. Um, But I'm joined here, as always, with Javen. How are you today? Hey, man. I am good. Today is a good day for me. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. And with that great introduction, let's dive right in because we got a lot to get through today. Yeah, um, I always remember. Yeah, start us off. Well, I just always have heard show hosts be like, "Oh, we gotta hurry up. We have so much to get to." And I was always just like, "Well, then just plan less." But yeah. here we are. I feel like we really do have a lot to talk about today. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this is uh, is helpful for you. Anyway, let's talk about Sean Foyt. Jamie, yeah. you brought this up. Yeah, this is something that I'm really fascinated with. Um, well, first of all, just linguistically, if you look at the name Sean Foyt. If you were a non-native English speaker, or even if you weren't, there's nothing about the letters that would suggest you would say it how we might be saying it. Yeah. Um, the word Sean is kind of strange. And then F-E-U-C-H-T, which I've heard conflicting reports. It could be Foyt. It could be Fuched. Yeah. I don't really know. <laughs> From what I can anyway. tell, the, the, it has French roots and in... French, you would say it Foyt. So I don't know if that's how he says it. Sure. So Sean Foyt is a Bethel worship leader Mm -hmm. who is going around the country in this worship, this movement called Let Us Worship. Um, Foyt has put, (laughs) I'm just scared now. He's put out about like 22 albums with Bethel. So this guy's a very accomplished, Mm -hmm. um, experienced worship leader. He also ran for the U.S. Senate in the state of California as Republican this year. Was it this year? He, he was voted out, or he lost it in uh, in March. Yeah, so active in the political scene as well as the worship scene, if you care to separate the two. Um, so, yeah, Foyt has generated, like, a lot of, um, I guess, attention. It's he mm-hmm. He's going around the country doing these kind of, like, organic concert kind of things mm-hmm. where— I mean, it's not just, like, him and a guitar either. It's, like, a big Bethel production a lot mm-hmm. of times where they'll go to these places— um, it's not like they're renting arenas right. or pulling permits to have these things. They're just showing up and worshiping. And um, I think this is interesting because I have a lot of friends and social media acquaintances who are like super on board. They think mm-hmm. that this is a really great movement as kind of a counter to all the violence that's going on. We just you know go out there and worship. It's really cool. And then I'm also seeing a lot of people who are saying a lot on the other side. So I wanted to bring this in and talk about it today. Um, so I wanted to just ask you, Colin. I know you've been reading about this. Mm-hmm. You've had some opinions on it. What are you thinking? Yeah. Um, so I want to be really charitable with how I say this, but to me, um, I see it as completely irresponsible. Um, I, I do not want to negate that I think there are some very good things that have happened and some significant and and real life changes that people have experienced. Um through these events. That said, I see them as troubling in, in several regards. For one, simply the fact that it's this idea that we travel from from city to city and that's truly revival and it, it completely neglects um, uh, long-term working with the communities in those places and, and it neglects the hard work that the local churches have been doing for years 
in these communities and they aren't partnering with them. It's nothing like that. It's coming in with lights and a big show and drawing thousands of people, which in the midst of a global pandemic, um, when 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 it the the chance of transmission and becoming spreaders in communities based off of some of these events, multiple health agencies have issued like that they're cautious about this. This is troubling to them in that it could be a super spreader event because they're singing, they're jumping around, they're not masked, they're not socially distant. Um, and you think of what that does to that community then when they leave. So they pack up and leave and then COVID spreads. It shuts down their economy. Their kids can't go to school. Yeah. Um, so I think whereas a lot of people would see this as, you know, they're just they're coming in, they're bringing the gospel mm-hmm. to these kind of chaotic areas where a lot of turmoil is happening. They're going from place to place. And then um, I think not accidentally, the last one is scheduled for Washington, like right before the election. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people see that as really positive. But like, I definitely hear what you're saying that, I mean, there are, <laughs> there are other consequences here. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, Foyt's whole, th- not his whole thing, but he, what I've heard him say is like, well, how are you going to call me a criminal for doing this when you've got, you know, like the Lakers out celebrating in mm-hmm. the streets on their championship mm-hmm. or whatever? There, there's a scene as a celebration, minus scene as criminal activity, or you have protesters, you know, doing demonstrations, you know. So he's like, how come them and not me? So, but I think the beautiful thing about cultural studies is, or when we investigate this kind of thing, is we don't have to say it's one or the mm-hmm. other. It's not like Foyt is bad or Foyt is good. But I think it is worthwhile to recognize that, like, it's both. People are, their lives are being transformed. Jesus is being praised. Mm-hmm. Good vibes. But also, like, there are a lot of other things, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, it gets back to uh, Christopher Whitmer even had a, a good post about this. And she was discussing, like, it, it highlights our faulty view of of mission work and that we quick go in and bring our jazz and lights and cool things and all that. And then we're out of there again. Um, and we leave them to their own. And, and I just think Foyt's leaving and there's a good chance that, that COVID is spread. It's going to shut down. Economies could shut down schools. Kids could be quarantined, just a lot of bad things. And in fact, people could get sick and some people could even die. Um, and I don't say that in an alarming way. It's just, we're in the pandemic where, where, um, this, this virus can spread. But if you are a person who, who it, the virus is not a very serious threat, um, then, then I guess what he's doing would be applauded. Um, yeah. I just, I wanted to read, um, you mentioned Christopher Whitmer's post. I threw it in here in our Google doc. He says, quote, we run into an area or country with our flashy lights and music, ignore the Christian local leaders, get a bunch of people to show up, preach our white American prosperity gospel and call it revival. Get slapped on the wrist, write home about how greatly we're being used of God and how the locals are persecuting us, then run off to the next Instagrammable place, (laughs) leaving pestilence, economic disruption, and heretical theology in our wake. So I think it's pretty clear what he thinks about (laughs) this. But um, I do think his critique is valid. And um, he also posted some... Um, some posts from other people who are talking about this, um, you know, Foyt, Foyt writes on, looks like Instagram. We had three venue changes and so much resistance, but the church will not be silenced. Fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. I think that's, that was, that's kind of my, like the church isn't being silenced. The church is doing the slow work there in Nashville. There was multiple Nashville pastors that said like, yeah, this hurt. Um, so someone we, well, I shouldn't speak for both of us. I really respect is Russ Ramsey, yeah, absolutely. a pastor in Nashville. Um, Russ tweets in response to Foyt's tweet. I guess Foyt shared this on multiple platforms. As a pastor in Nashville, this frustrates me. Churches, um, communities that we know, love, and walk through life together in covenantal relationship are not silenced here. 
Boasting about enduring feigned persecution while calling a concert a church is not helpful. Right. And that's because, I mean, like Nashville does not have restrictions on, like you are allowed to meet as a church. Um, You're even allowed to meet indoors. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm guessing the regulations Mm -hmm. change from place to place as for because he's going all around the country doing this. Um, Another post in response, Carlos Whitaker, uh, I think he's a pastor. He says, hey, buddy, nobody is silencing the church in Nashville. Our church met today and had thousands show up for baptism in a nicely, nice social, socially distanced masked way because we're in a pandemic. I think it's irresponsible to claim being silent because that's not the case. That's not the cause here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, there's also a story, I guess, about um, like the evangelical Bethel College in Shasta County where the college, mm-hmm. there was a pandemic breakout. Over 120 students and staff tested positive for the virus in the past two weeks at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. The county officials say that the outbreaks were large enough to contribute to a recent spike in COVID-19 across the county and move them back onto the red list. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I just I want to be clear in saying that it's not it's not one or the other. Like, it's not like Foyt's a, a good guy or a bad guy, but it just seems to me that this this is irresponsible and and to say that that this is the idea of church mission work or church revival seems also uh, problematic theology in the long run as well. Um, sure. And, so. and I think, yeah, I mean, just to, to quickly throw that alongside with how Mark Devers, who's a pastor in D.C., handled, they were not allowed to meet while many other same kind of institutions are. So it was— As a, as a church. You as mean. a church. They're not allowed to meet as a church. So it's an unfair rule of law. So Mark Devers and his team, what they have done is they have created a plan um, in which they can meet outdoor, socially distanced, masked up, and they created a contingency plan with health officials, and they made appeal after appeal, but they were always shot down. So they eventually did sue. But while they're suing, they still obey the regulations that are in the in the town, and they don't meet. The suit wins. They, they win the suit because it was an unfair rule of law there, and they are allowed to meet according to that protocol. And yeah. and that just seems like an incredibly responsible way because there there have been ways in which it has been hypocritical, you know, right and left about who's allowed to be out in public and who's not. Right. So I, I get that tension, but there's responsible ways to handle that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think – I don't know. I think I – think just kind of devil's advocate. I think fans of Foyt would just say, like, well, he's doing it outside. Mm-hmm. No one's forced to show up. It's just a come-if-you-want-to thing, and we're just out there to praise Jesus. So, whatever. <laughs> right, right. And, and so, I mean, yeah, whatever. It's If you've been to one of those things, tell us what it's like. I've not been to that. So we need to move on. Yep. Um, happy Columbus Day, Colin. Mm-hmm. Just want to wish you a happy Columbus Day. Yes, a few days a few days late. What was it, on the on the 12th? I know not which numerical day it was, but I do know it was the day that we tried to go to the bank and withdraw a large sum of money to pay a certain mechanic who only accepted cash mm. because we had a deal with our car. And on that day, <laughs> they, were day not, that was. they were not open. <laughs> and so, it, yeah. If I remember right, that was on Monday. So it would have been the 12th. Okay. Yeah. So um, I have a few articles here that I wanted to read, but I just, I guess I'm a little bit amazed we still observe Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, and, well, I... Well, go ahead. Question. Do you think that in 20 years, banks will be closed for Columbus Day? No. You don't? No. How long do you think it'll take? Uh, five years, 10 years. Really? Somewhere in there, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think at, at least at least as a national thing, 
uh, especially, which already some states aren't observing Columbus Day anymore. Yeah, they, national, some have declared a national indigenous, indigenous people's, people's day. day. Yeah, yeah uh, I see that. That's what's I, yeah, okay. five, ten years, I think. It's countrywide. Interesting. I don't really disagree with you. So, um, yeah, I was doing mm-hmm. a bit of research on Columbus. Um, I know you were as well, Colin. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of threw in some articles yeah. here that I wanted to read down through. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot of different ways that Columbus is viewed. Um, and this is something I honestly didn't really know much about until recently. I just remember learning about Columbus Day in school. We mm-hmm. celebrate good old Columbus, came out here and found America on his way to India. Good times, right? So Yeah, and I was only really alerted. I um, I have some friends that would be farther left um, than I would be in every Columbus Day. They would post something about why they're not celebrating it and i i mean i always read it and it made sense to me but i didn't really dig in that much so it's really interesting this time and and so yeah i don't know if any of this information is new to some people who are listening to this but some of it was to me okay so first article written october in 2019 from jillian brockwell at the washington post i'm just going to really quickly read down through this after so this is just kind of giving a history um, perspective on Columbus and what he did. After significantly overselling the prospects for gold to the king and queen of Spain, Columbus returned to Hispaniola with 17 ships and 1,200 men. The men he had left at the fort the year before had all been killed. After they had roamed the islands in gangs looking for gold, taking women and children as slaves for sex and labor. Columbus and his crew searched and searched for gold to no avail, so they filled their ships with something else they could sell, people. Of the five th- 500 uh, Taino they took and these people were selected because they were the strongest and healthiest specimens 200 die on the voyage back to spain many more died once they are sold into slavery so columbus tried again for gold but this time he and his men didn't go looking for it they ordered the native people 14 and older to deliver a certain amount of gold dust every three months if they didn't their hands would be cut off yeah and that was a common theme hands being cut off was a common theme i yeah, found throughout I kept many many that. sources um, another article from Michael Coard at City Life, which is a Philadelphia magazine, writes, he cites um, one of friend, no, what's the guy's name? Uh, Bartolom, de Bartolomé de la Casas. Yeah, so this guy is one of the primary sources. Mm-hmm. Some, he was a missionary who followed in, followed in the places that Columbus had gone. Sure. So... This article says, contrary to the king and queen's order that he, um, Columbus, endeavor to win over the inhabitants and to treat them very well and lovingly and abstain from doing them any injury, (laughs) uh, he did not do that. For example, he created in 1495 the tribute system, which required every native over 14 to provide him and his men with a hawk's bell of gold every three months. Those who complied were given a token to wear around their necks. Those who didn't? were punished by having their hands cut off and left to bleed to death. About 10,000 persons in Haiti and the Dominican suffered such cruelty. And there's more. Many of the indigenous peoples were, while alive, roasted on spits, burned at the stake. Invaders, um, these invaders being Columbus and his men, hacked the children into pieces. They would also make bets as to who could slit a man in two or cut off his head at one blow. Or they opened up his bowels. They tore babes from their mothers. Yeah, I mean, it just pretty much gets more gruesome from there. Mm-hmm. So this is coming from Bartolome, Bartolome de las Casas, who witnessed the carnage. So some people are going to say that these reports are not valid. Um, others say they are valid because he was an eyewitness to it. 
Yeah, and I think what is kind of telling is that like Columbus is arrested because of the evil atrocities that he has committed. Um, which you know more about that than, than I do, but um, he was uh, Governor Francisco de Boradilla, I guess, arrested him for inhuman and widespread crimes against the uh, native population and shipped him back to Spain in shackles. Um, and the evidence was so overwhelming that Columbus confessed and was convicted. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I mean, it's obvious, I think, the crimes he's committing against these native people are horrendous. Mm-hmm. He gets arrested for it, shipped back to Spain. Um, if what I've read is correct, this guy who arrested him later gets, sh- like, his ship shipwrecked and dies. Mm-hmm. And then so then while Columbus sails back, or after he sails back and is convicted, he's kind of like restored with all the honor and praise. And I think that's why we remember him kind of the way we do instead of um, maybe as the way that we should. So one article that is kind of defending Columbus comes from Kevin Jones at the Catholic News Agency. Um, he, the article is titled, Critics of Columbus Day Get History Wrong. The historical legacy of Columbus is tarred by bad history and the quest to change Columbus Day, according to a researcher who has focused on Columbus's religious motives for exploration. Quote, they're blaming Columbus for the things he didn't do. It was mostly the people who came after, the settlers. I think he's been terribly maligned, writes Professor Carol Delaney in 2017. I think a lot of people don't know anything much really about Columbus, said Delaney. Um, Columbus and the... uh, she said Columbus initially had a favorable impressions of many of the Native Americans and had instructed the men under his command not to abuse them but to trade with them. So, yeah. But I <laughs> I think the evidence is pretty compelling. Yeah, very compelling. Um, another person who wrote a few days ago, Brian Francis Calkin, on Facebook. Um, I thought this was an interesting take. He says, The problem with the liberal critique of Columbus Day is that rather than unveiling the myth of Columbus Day, it only generates a new mythological structure of its own. So, uh, I'm trying to not read the whole thing. Basically, what, what his point was is the, the previous myth was that Columbus was this great hero in that he came and he found America and we're celebrating all that. And the liberal critique is basically... Um, the, the native idealism that there was this idyllic, peaceful population and this evil, violent white man. Um, right. Comes came. in, kills people, spreads disease. Yeah. And just completely obliterates yeah. them. Yeah. And so it's like, it's just that the white, that's just what white men do. They just break apart civilization. Which and, are perfectly peaceful and harmonious. Yeah. And I did find, I mean, like just in reading some of even um, reading some of Columbus's own personal journals, it does give someone like he was, he was fairly scared for him and his men's life because of that the natives would eat them. Um, yeah, so kind of to make uh, Calkin's point yeah. here, we don't want to think of these natives as like perfectly harmonious right. tribes living in this beautiful utopia. Like, yeah, it's not that simple. There were like savages there too. Like right. they were killing each other. Mm-hmm. They were having their own wars. They were probably mistreating each other terribly. Yeah. I still don't think that's cause to celebrate yeah. Columbus. And and yeah, uh, who comes in 1600s and was people. a different standard of violence and acceptability, but even by those standards Columbus what he does, I mean he he, he is gets in, arrested. indicted for <laughs> right. it. Um, and so here we are in 2020 still having a national holiday mm-hmm. and closing our banks for Christopher Columbus. That's an interesting thing and I agree with Colin. I don't think that's going to be around forever. Yeah. And and I think that's probably a good thing because yeah. I think it says something about your culture when you're still wanting cuz cuz I think the 
the defense of him that I hear is, okay, so what if he did those things? Why don't we just, like... He still every, found America, Colin. Well, I mean... <laughs> well, it's kind of silly, like you, a necessary fiction. Like, there's good myths, um, and just let us have that myth. Um, but I, I do think it says something about a society when that's the kind of myth that you're willing to uphold. Um, that's mm. that's where I shake out with it. But any any other thoughts on that? Not so much. All right, moving on. In the third segment of today's podcast, we're going to talk a bit more about homosexuality. Um, this is a topic that we've been exploring um, earlier in the podcast. Um, I know that personally, I've been doing a lot of reading about it, um, wrestling through these issues. And mm-hmm. Colin kind of made the distinction earlier while we were talking in the studio about there's there's different ways to approach this. So you can approach this pastorally, which has more to do like what what would you do in your church um, to like deal with mm-hmm. issues as like, how are you going to treat people in the church? What are you going to do? And then there's kind of a different angle you can take, which is more like um, hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to read the Bible and this is what I think the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, more the direction we're going to be going today. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to say it. Yeah. Probably less dangerous that way. Yeah. Um, but I think, We've talked about before. Um, we we presented briefly some of the arguments that are are currently circulating as far as an affirming view. Um, and today we want to walk through um, the traditional view, and then even just kind of say where you know ways we've arrived at our thinking and how we think sure. about this. Um, so with that said, should we dive right in? Yeah, I'm gonna give you the privilege of going first here. Yeah. Um, so I think what's important, I just want to say a quick word with how, as, as Javen said, like this is this is more of a, a scripture exercise. Disclaimer number one, though. Um, and in that, I want to say in how to approach the Bible is that I approach the Bible with a high view of scripture. Whatever the Bible, wherever the text leads, that's where we should follow. Um, I think that's inherent to how we should view the Bible as as Christians. And being okay to go wherever the text leads, whether that's, um, you know, according to your denomination's tradition or whether that's according to your family tradition or what's popular or whatever. Right. It's just you should go where the text leads. And um, so with that in mind, as we dive into what I think Scripture teaches us, we also need to remember that to go where the text leads, we need to understand the function of the Bible, which I think can— Yeah, I mean, I feel like— that's a good that's a good phrase going where the text leads but there's like a ton baked into that yeah. and people give their lives to understanding mm-hmm. what that even means. Right. And that's why I want to lay out here this is where I think the t- text yeah, leads. Sure. Um and I want to a quick quote and how to approach the Bible that I think is super helpful moving forward is by John Walton but he he says this all the time but he says the Bible was not written to us but it was written for us. And what he means by that is the Bible was written at a specific time by a specific person, in a specific place, to a specific audience, none of those which were 21st century people. So absolutely the Bible was meant for us um, and meant to shape our thinking and engagement with the world and to bear revelation of God. Um, But that does mean we have to do the hard work in understanding um, authorial intention of texts and understanding that and then using that wisdom in how we will apply it in in our modern era yeah sure because i mean we're having these conversations in genesis class like um it's just that's not an easy thing to do what colin just laid Mm -hmm. out there because you know what who you think 
wrote the Pentateuch, um, that matters a lot in what you're going to, who and when and to whom they were writing matters a lot in wh- where you're trying to follow right. with the text. Like, did Moses write it? Did he write it before the Exodus? Did he write it after? You know, these kinds of questions mm-hmm. are really important and they're, they're questions that are worth examining, but they're, they are hard to examine. Anyway, so keep going. Yeah, so um, I have five reasons um, in which I'll just put it out there right away. I hold to a tradi- traditional Christian sexual ethic, um, which has been held by the church for, for 2,000 plus years. So full disclaimers aside, that's, that's where I'm at. And I'm going to give a defense of that position um, and why I think that's the biblical and why I see it. As something that um, there are some things in scripture which are very confusing and fairly unclear to me. Um, I do not find this mm-hmm. in that category. Sure. Um, so I'm going to walk through five reasons. And um, my first reason that, that scripture affirms a traditional sexual ethic is that sex difference is part of what marriage is. According to Genesis 127 to 23 to 24 and Matthew 19, 4 to 5. And so I make this the number one point because I think it's more important than prohibition passages. I think a lot of times the the discussion quickly goes to prohibition passages, which I do think are important and I will get to. But I think more important is the question of marriage and the question of what is marriage for. Um, and and one of the components um, that, that scripturally is part of marriage is sex difference co- accompanied with covenantal faithfulness for life. Um and I, I say that because, well, I'll get into that here in just a little bit about why that um, is scripturally sound. But elsewhere we see in scripture that marriage union can be terminated. So as I said, like one of the components is sex difference. Another one is covenantal faithfulness. But we see in scripture there's places where it makes exceptions on covenantal faithfulness um, in marriage. In that in um, a marriage union can be terminated because of death. We see in Romans 7. Mm. Um, the marriage union can be terminated because of adultery in Matthew 5. And the marriage union can be terminated in uh, because of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. However, those kind of addendums or exceptions are never made according to sex difference. Right. And I think that's important. Um, any thoughts on that? No, keep going. It's good. Yeah. Um, so, and the reason that sex difference is there, I think, is um, we see that in Genesis 2, 23 to 24, um, which says, the man said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So in verse 24, it starts off with that is why and what is referring to, or it's saying that is why marriage happens. And what is referring to is the difference that is highlighted in verse 23, the sex difference, that man and woman are different. Uh, and it is for that reason that they are brought together in the marriage in Genesis 24. Um, so, yeah, um, there is an argument that that you even talked about. I think you wrote a blog about it, but um, that has a high Augustinian theology of marriage, mm-hmm. um, which you know more about that. I include that just a little bit, uh, but not much. I, I say included in sex difference is the idea that sex difference includes capacity for reproduction. Um, but the capacity for reproduction, um, I would argue, is not strictly what makes a marriage a marriage. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway. 
Uh, and the other reason I think that sex difference is important is how it functions in related to the other parts of the creation narrative in which embedded in the creation accounts is uh, complementarity or, or binaries. Um, we see them littered throughout, especially chapters one and two. We see heaven and earth, land and sea, light, dark, male, female. So it seems built into the fabric of how God created the world um, in Genesis. And, and that's, that's my big point number one, is that, right. that sex difference is part of what marriage is. Yeah, I think, I, think I, have to, I think I have to agree with that. I think that's true. Um, one, one point, because and like, it just seems like at, on some level, that's just, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. Like, it is there. Right. It, it seems obvious. One, one point I've heard against kind of a counterpoint mm -hmm. is like, so we don't have ever the creation of amphibians mentioned. Mm. Like these animals who aren't really land or sea, they're not mentioned, but they're in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe like Adam and Eve represent those binaries that you're mm -hmm. talking about, but then like they're not representative of everything, just like the creation account isn't representative of amphibians. But I don't really think that's a very strong argument. Yeah. But that is one way people tend to say, yes, binaries, but also kind of thing. Right. Because the, the pushback on that point that I made, um, that, I, that I've read some of, is that the point of the ideal marriage was not the sexual difference, but it was that it was covenantal faithfulness mm -hmm. um, between two humans. And I right. think that... And that could be achieved. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. But that, to me, like, I don't know why it has to be one or the other of those. That's why I set it up as, well, yes, you're right. It was covenantal faithfulness. But it was also sex difference for the reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah. So, like um, in the Augustinian view, you have you have three goods of marriage, and one is the the faithfulness kind of thing, mm -hmm. and then the other one is procreation. And yeah. so, like you have to have all three. There's three goods. Yeah. 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 And I think the idea, like with the pro, like procreation, plays a, a role in it. But I think the idea that you have to be able to have children for a marriage to be legitimate does kind of break down. Even in the Old Testament, like we see barren wives all throughout the Old Testament and, and you wouldn't say that that's not a marriage which I don't know that's always the argument that's being made but I have heard that some yeah and this is something I hope to do more reading about is is to learn how the church has in the theology of marriage that the church has held or maybe different mm -hmm. theologies of marriage that the church has held because from my readings like this Augustinian view is really really prevalent to where I mean it's basically held by the church, largely since the time of Augustine, back in like the 400s. Yeah, that was new to me. I didn't. I didn't and know it that. holds that the pro, like procreation is mm -hmm. a like not only good thing about marriage, but it is necessary. That it's directed towards procreation. I don't think Augustine would argue that if if you can't have kids, you're not married. But he would argue that if you're not trying to have kids, like if that's not the order that yeah. you're directed to, then you might have a relationship, but that's not a marriage, which yeah. is interesting to me. And I, and I really wonder. Is that what the church has believed? The, the author I was reading claimed that it is. I, but, like, well, we both would kind of disagree with that, I think. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think as, like, the Catholic church would be close to that um, in that yeah, for a Catholic ethic of life, like, contraceptives are out of bounds. Right. Um, any kind of and contraceptive. And I think it's very tightly wed to that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And But I think even if, like, a true Augustinian view, like, for a Catholic, like, they do hold that family planning is okay. Um, but... But I don't know that. Okay, family planning. Yeah, so I'm trying to think. <laughs> I can't get too deep in the weeds here, but um, there's certain times. Of, okay, I got you. I got you. Okay. I got you. <laughs> right, but doesn't this still doesn't doesn't have to do with contraception? So, right. Yeah. I, yeah. 
cool. But I think even a true, like a true heart Augustinian view would still not be on board with that, if I understand. Yeah, it I don't know enough to say for sure. Yeah, and neither do I. So let's just move on to my second point. My second point is the prohibition passages. Um, whenever same-sex sexual relations are mentioned, they are always prohibited. Um, and they're mentioned in Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6.9, 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Um, and, and I think what's important about these prohibition passages that I want to make a point about is the language of prohibition, the language of the prohibition passages is unqualified. And what I mean by that is there's no mention of power differentials or what could be called pederasty. Um, I think I'm saying that right. But my point is, and I'm going to get into that more with, with uh, my third point, but there is historical evidence of adult consensual same-sex relationships in ancient Greco-Roman landscape. Um, so the logic would follow that the authors know about those kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. And so when they make these prohibitions, those are included in their prohibition, if that makes sense. Because yep. there is the argument, uh, which to me is is very uncompelling, um, and I'll talk about why my point number three, but that is that Paul was prohibiting a, a certain type of same-sex um, sexual intercourse, and and um, and which you've done some study on, on Greco-Roman culture, but there, it was a power, like, it's bizarre to think of it now, but it was a power move and actually right. a, a cultural symbol. Right. If you were able to, as an older male, like rape a younger male servant as a show of power and domination. Yeah, that... And that's what I mean by pederasty. Sure. And um, they also had this weird kind of concept where like a younger man would be mentored by an older man, but then the relationship could also like turn sexual. Yeah, and that was like a common theme. It seems like super bizarre, it is but bizarre. it's very common. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in hearing more about this, the next I'm writing a series on this um, on my website. And the next view I'm going to examine really takes this approach, like diving into the language and trying to claim that that's she's making a, an argument in favor. And this is the approach that she's okay. using. That's yeah. the words I'm trying to get out of my mouth. So that's interesting because that, yeah. that takes me to my third point in which historically – we see evidence for all kinds of same-sex relationships, including those between consenting adults. Um, I want to give a couple like primary sources from from that time to, to illustrate this point um, and why I think that the person who's writing what you're saying, why I, I don't buy that argument. And, and here are some of the reasons why that I think Paul knew of consenting same-sex relationships. In the letter of Aristius in 152, um, the author of that refers to same-sex sexual behavior with no reference to pederasty or any other type of exploitation. He just, it's just, it's a type of expression of sexuality right. to him. Um, in pseudo Ficlides, I think, um, which is in 3 AD, the author warns of quote-unquote rousing homosexual passion, um, which would also seem to refer to all types of same-sex behavior and lust. Josephus writes in Against Apion, um, uh, 2 uh, but he writes, quote, The law owns no other mixture of sexes but that which is according to nature, end quote. And so Josephus makes an argument on marriage or law um, appealing to the natural order. And this is a contemporary of Paul's. Um, he says there is no other mixture of sexes, meaning that um, he knows of other ones, it would seem. And then in Second Enoch, another um, 
another thing from the day. There's a crass phrase, which I won't repeat, but there's a crass phrase that describes same-sex relationships, <laughs> but it describes it as friend with friend. And friend would imply that there is right. no exploitation happening, but yeah. that is mutual. Yeah. Um, so those are just some of, that's not all of them, but that those are just some a few primary sources that would have been, um, as we understand Paul, like I would argue like those things are in his mind, in his prohibition passages. So the the idea that he didn't know about a consensual, loving, same-sex relationship to me is foreign to scripture right. itself. Because um, I think Paul knew of those things and it's included in his prohibition. Yeah. Thanks for doing the work. <clears throat> Excuse me. We don't really have time, but I know you even you had even a few more. You've done a lot of compilation here and laying out your view of this, yeah. which is great. Um, I think it is really interesting to to look at the the Roman culture, the Greco-Roman mm-hmm. culture, and and try to understand like just the the view of marriage, because I think we often go into this thing holding our contemporary views of marriage and then kind of implotting those on what Paul may have been talking mm-hmm. about. And I think there's there's pretty good evidence that what Paul thought was normal, and what I want to be careful what I what I mean by normal is like a man and woman mm-hmm. in a relationship. Just the dynamic was not at all what we think it is today. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, as far as it's like a very male dominant society. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. I really want to read more about this and see, but I I appreciate what you did here, and I think I I have to agree with you. Um. Yeah, and there's a couple more points that I would make. Um, we're out of time for today, but if you want to, I would appreciate feedback, or if you want to know my yeah. last two, um, sure. shoot me a message. But again, as David said, like this is an intellectual reflection on on Scripture, like trying to really understand Scripture. And uh, to me, the evidence is clear. But what what is more, <laughs> how then shall we do? How then yeah. shall we live according to this in in today's society? And how because they are people to, if you're gay or straight, it's your people to be loved, and your people that are loved by God. And it is important. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, think about that as, as a culture, we've we've come a long way mm-hmm. in understanding sexuality. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is largely a good thing. Like we've 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 progressed from from some really bad ideas of and, like inferiority of women. And, yeah, yeah. And man, I wish we had more time. We could get into even what you were talking about the trajectory of scripture. Yeah, we, we talk about gender roles and stuff, but we can get into that at some other time. I think you brought up this um, kind of this difference of intellectual engagement with this topic versus pastoral. Mm-hmm. And one thing in my own experience which has been interesting is when you talk to people who have studied this a lot, like mm-hmm. people with PhDs who have they've given their lives towards studying the Bible, I think, you know, they, they probably largely, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone. I'm talking about the people that I've encountered, which is mm-hmm. in the South in a yeah. very conservative Christian environment. Like they largely agree with what you say about scripture. But when you ask someone, what do we do about this in the mm-hmm. church? What does this mean? How do we do this pastorally? Yeah. They don't hesitate to say it's hard. And I yeah. don't know. Cause it still is the consensus as it has been for 2000 years. The by far majority of you is a traditional sexual. Ethic. Yeah, it is. But it's the, the difficulty comes in, in how to then implement it in our churches and our communities yeah. and how and to I, love each other. And um, sure. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I guess it, it really frustrates me when people just assume that it's obvious how then we ought to live mm-hmm. in light of in light of this and in light of our seeking to understand. Yeah, because I'd argue scripturally it is 
fairly clear. Um, I hope for the reasons I laid out, but what is not clear is how then to to live. There's yeah. incredibly hard questions as we learn to love God and love our neighbor in this area. Yeah, and yeah, we don't have a lot of time. But yeah. like, is there is there space where we're allowed to figure this mm-hmm. out? Does is that what Christ wants of us as image bearers? Is to figure out how then we do live. And if one church doesn't agree with another church, does that mean that someone has to be necessarily wrong and and living in complete sin? Like, is is there space for us to disagree and still love each other? Um, interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and quick to point people, if you want more good resources, I'd point you to Greg Coles, Preston Sprinkle. They've been really helpful in compiling some of the yeah, things that Preston I did Preston Sprinkle today. is really, really good at this. Yeah. Um, we did have a listener question. Someone just asked, so I want to just put it to you really quickly, yeah. Colin. How do you keep your smartphone from dominating your life? First off, I'm terrible at it, um, but I do have a couple practices that I try. Um, I have an alarm that goes every evening at 7.30, and that is uh, I treat my try to treat my phone like I would treat a child and that it's time to put it to bed, um, And which for me, put it to bed, I will still text and call, but that's end of social media right. or, or things like wow, that. that's cool. I like that. Um, and then in the morning, I just try to have a rule that there's no phone before Bible. Um, hmm. And then I take it off. I take off social media on Sabbath. Wow, that's three really good practices. <laughs> I did not expect like that good of an answer. So there you go. Someone also said we should talk about sparkling water. Since I'm already going to be late for class, I will just say that the peach and honey aha water is probably the best there is. Uh, I'm going to have to disagree with you. That's an interesting opinion, but you're wrong. It's I don't even remember the brand, but it's cranberry lime, and it's at Ingalls. On the next episode, we're going to be back in the studio, hopefully with a guest from mm-hmm. campus talking about evangelical engagement with culture, the history of evangelicals, but that might be in two weeks. So I guess you'll have to come back and join us again. Yep. Also, the Abstract Co- Podcast might be doing coffee mugs. We ordered two to see what they look like, see if they look decent, and we've already had one person order. So if you too would like one, hit us up. They're going to be about eight bucks. Thanks for tuning in to episode six. We'll see you again next week.